This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Sam Knight is a staff writer at The New Yorker. And he's got some pretty strong feelings about the British Library. You know, let's be sort of like personal from the get-go. It's just one of my favorite places, right? The British Library isn't like your normal neighborhood library. Picture the New York Public Library, but then go bigger. It's one of the largest libraries in the world, a sprawling red brick building that houses more than 13 million books and incredible historical artifacts from the Magna Carta to handwritten Beatles lyrics. But to Sam, it's also homey. You know, there are 11 different reading rooms, you know, for sort of maps or manuscripts or social sciences or the humanities or rare books and music, which is my favorite. And, and those reading rooms, they have like nice desks, good lighting, good Wi-Fi. They, they manage to feel kind of civic, but also kind of, kind of luxurious and comfortable. It's like sort of these different communities moving at slightly different gears, if you see what I mean. So you've got exhibition spaces, you've got tourists, you've got cafes, you've got freelancers, you've got researchers, you've got entrepreneurs. And that's before you even get to the books, in a way. You know, it's certainly one of the the greatest libraries in in the Western world, just in terms of the sheer quantity of of materials that you you can lay your hands on. It's not like a small library where I would go and maybe look something up and then walk over and grab it. Like that's just not possible when you're talking about the scale of this library. You you need to you need the digital system to just organize all the information. Otherwise, it's just not possible, I think, to have such a library. Yes. Um there's amazing conveyor belts and this kind of really interesting system of how they sort the books according to size. But it means, as you say, the system is actually pretty arcane like the the library you know the books aren't lifted alphabetically or according to the dewey decimal system or other kind of standard library things it is its own specific british library way of finding the book it doesn't make any sense unless you've got the kind of the computers to unpick it this became a problem in late october when the library was hit with a massive cyber attack grinding the whole operation to a halt things were to put it mildly very bad i mean it did reopen physically but you can't order a book. You can't buy anything from the gift shop. You can't buy a ticket to the exhibitions. You can't do a reader pass. There's no Wi-Fi. I mean, you know, it's not gone back to to the pre-internet state. It's a non-functioning library. You've got, you know, millions and millions. You know, I think the British Library has 170 million items, but that collection is now out of reach. Have you been there recently? Are things back to normal yet? Yes and no. In fact, just a couple of days ago, on, on, on the 15th of January, they made their first attempt to get the library kind of 
back on its feet in the sense of being able to access materials and the website and things like that. So they've got a temporary website up this week and you can now search the catalogue, but you can't order a book. I think last year, something like 86 million items had delivered to the reading rooms every year. Like that, that, that's not happening. So today on the show, a major cultural institution was brought to its knees by hackers and months later is still struggling to get back to normal. What'll it take to, well, turn the page? I'm Emily Peck, filling in for Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about tech, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We don't know exactly how hackers infiltrated the British library's systems, but the first signs of trouble were some fairly innocuous issues on the library's website. The kind of the public announcements at the library start on October the 28th, which is, um, which is a Saturday, and there's a sense of just, oh, the web, you know, the website's fallen over, it's a Saturday, we'll get the tech guys in to kind of sort things out over the weekend. And then by the sort of Sunday evening, that's, there's, a, there's, there's another kind of update sort of describing this as a kind of major uh, technology outage. And then I think by the Tuesday of that week, we're starting to talk about the National Cyber Security Centre and the police and people getting involved and, and, and the sense that this is, that this is a cyber attack. Again, we don't really know when the library figured out what was happening. They're not saying much. But after a couple of weeks, the public learned that a ransomware hacking group called Ricida was responsible. The group has been the culprit behind an array of cyber attacks within the past year. There's speculation that it has ties to Russia, but very little is known about the group. In fact, no one seems quite sure even how to pronounce Ricida, Rasida, Ricida. Anyways, however you want to say their name, the group hacked into the British library system and stole hundreds of thousands of files, crushing the entire digital infrastructure. So what did they steal? It's not like they went in and stole, like, (laughs) there are things you could steal in person, real things from the British library that are very valuable, like the Magna Carta (laughs) or the, or Beatles lyrics, you know, written down by the, by the band members, but they, but they didn't steal that. Jane Austen's writing desk, you know. (laughs) Yeah. You could go in and steal Jane Austen's writing desk. I mean, I'm sure it'd be hard. No, no, that'd be really difficult. (laughs) Um, and um, And it, and it seems certainly from the sort of the, the files, I think there were something like 490,000 files. This wasn't, you know, scans of Shakespeare. Um, this was employees' passport 
debts and, you know, our equivalent of social security numbers and, you know, personal data that should not be shared on the internet. I think the, the British Library employs about 2,000 people. Um, so it's, you know, it's a major employer that has to protect people's, people's data. You're right, given the kind of the treasures that it houses, the information that it has doesn't seem to have been the target. This just seems to be a kind of accidental and kind of horrific sort of unintended consequence. Although, you know, who can, who can be sure, you know, when we're talking about a ransomware group and a cyber attack? So do you know what other um, organizations Brysida has targeted in the past? I looked at Brysida's site on the dark web, and at the time, I think there were kind of 67 different organizations that have been hit since the spring of last year and they really they really run the gamut you know there's the there's the Chilean army there's the Qatar uh, equestrian club there's quite a few hospitals and kind of healthcare groups seems to be if there's any thread it seems to be hitting healthcare companies and hospitals and other educational kind of outfits but to be honest it it, it looks like a a pretty random grab bag. There's a Brazilian conglomerate, there's a Hollywood video games company, you know, and, and in my conversations with the cybersecurity expert who worked on on this attack, there was a very strong sense that this was just a kind of commercial shakedown uh, operation rather than anything kind of state-directed or with particular intentions or logic behind it. Rice his shakedown work like this. First, the group hacked the system, stole the files, and disabled big swaths of the digital infrastructure. Then, they set a ransom price of 20 Bitcoin, or about $850,000 at the time. When the library declined to pay the ransom, the files were listed up for auction to anyone on the dark web. And that auction went on for a week, and 90% of the data was unsold. Um, In terms of the data, it was, you know, very much, you know, the British Library has 2,000 employees. Uh, this was passport scans, social security numbers, you know, just personal data of staff, the kind of things that shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be available kind of on the internet. So 90% of it went unsold, and then it was just freely available to, to download. And actually, in, me and my kind of naivety when I was doing my reporting, I was like, oh, let me take a look at them. And then I was like, wait, what am I doing? I'm like downloading... <laughs> Like four hundred ninety thousand files from the from like a hacking group on the. I mean, so I, 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 so I so I so I stopped doing it before they made those files public. They presumably asked the British Library, said, "Pay the ransom, and we'll never make them public." And I guess the, the library didn't do that. I mean, did they consider doing that? Yes, there's a sort of grey area here because it's a kind of you know the British Library. You know, it is a public building. It does receive money from the British government. But it's it's what we call in the UK an arm's length body. You know, it's independent. It's financially independent. So it it, it seems unclear. You know, the the British government has just kind of made it clear that it won't pay ransoms to to ransomware attackers. But I think everyone kind of acknowledged that the British Library was in this kind of limboish situation. But they they chose not to pay the ransom because they were pretty quiet for a, a while after this happened. Um... So you kind of think maybe there was some real weighing going on. Yes, it's it's hard to sort of infer what the thinking was. I mean, I, th- I think it's sort of worth saying the really obvious thing, which is this was like a really devastating 
cyber attack. I mean, Rice had hit an Italian hospital group just a couple of days before the British Library, and there was some interruption the following morning, but the hospital was more or less up and running by the end of the following day. The British Library clearly had a vulnerable and open computer system that was connected to many other universities and other libraries around the UK. And this hack has caused very, very serious damage. No one outside the library really knows quite why it's taking so long to get back on its feet and what the nature of the damage was to the institution. So, I mean, it seems like a real lose-lose for the library because they're they're not going to pay Raisada, you know, $800,000. But in the end, there's some reporting that shows this hack is going to cost them anywhere from six to seven million pounds, which is a lot more than $800,000. And I think this might be sort of more generally true of, of cyber attacks, is there is a sense of sympathy to the library, but, but somewhat kind of limited sympathy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that kind of, that goes in a couple of different directions. One is that just, just simply on a kind of pretty boring, like legal basis on a kind of European data protection law, the British Library is liable for, for, for data that it loses to a hack, mm-hmm. right? So the British Library just can't say a whole lot and be seen to be liable for losing all of this, losing all of this information. And then there is this, I think there is a, a widespread sense that it, it should not have been so bad, right? It's clearly been too open and it's been too devastating on on some level. People might feel that on a kind of institutional basis, but just as a sort of, as someone who just loves the building and loves using it, I kind of, I just, I just feel so, I just feel so sad for them and so upset for them. It seems like if you're trying to understand why the British Library wouldn't pay a ransom. You could think of it as like the British Library is this cultural institution. It's there for the public good. And paying a ransom to um, hackers is very much not in the public interest because every time they succeed and they get their ransom, it's almost like a like a billboard to, for other companies or businesses or public institutions that get hacked of like, this is how it works. You pay us and everything goes away. It like adds to their credibility. Um, so for the public good and the public interest, the British Library probably shouldn't pay hackers, even though it'd be like lots cheaper, maybe. No, 100%. It's definitely the kind of the principled, the principled position to take. When we come back, when hackers attack a library, who pays the price? Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. 
And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hi, I'm Jeremy Stahl. I'm Slate's jurisprudence editor. Ordinarily, I edit our courts and legal coverage from the comfort of my home office in Los Angeles, but for the next month and a half, I will be locked in a lower Manhattan courtroom with the rest of the press, a jury of 12 New Yorkers, Justice Juan Marchand, prosecutors, Trump's defense team, and the former president himself as history unfolds. I've temporarily moved myself and my family from Los Angeles to New York to cover this case firsthand, like I have done in other cases, including the Paul Manafort case, the Roger Stone criminal trial, and Donald Trump's first impeachment. I'm hoping that my background knowledge of the many, many criminal travails of our former president can offer something to you, Slate's listener. Over the next several weeks, you'll be hearing from me on Amicus, Slate's legal podcast, and in articles on Slate.com, from the jury selection to the opening arguments to the witness testimony and cross-examination and the prosecution's case and the defense's case, and ultimately to a final verdict. We will be providing you wall-to-wall coverage throughout the entirety of the trial as it unfolds from the courtroom. There's no way I'd be able to do it without the support of Slate Plus. So if you're not already a subscriber, please join today by clicking try free at the top of the Amicus show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash Amicus Plus to get access wherever you listen. Thank you so, so much. Reisita's goal with this attack, we don't we don't really know, but was it just to make a profit or is there any indication they had bigger intentions here? Yes, so, so there are there are no indications that it that there were kind of larger motives at play. Uh, and I was obviously kind of really interested about this and kind of asked people who 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 might know, and I was kind of steered very clearly away from the idea that this was some kind of an attack or sort of deliberate attack on kind of Britain's cultural infrastructure. In a way, it kind of doesn't stop it being that anyway, if you know what I mean. Because yeah. it, it sort of, it it illustrates the vulnerability of, um, of our kind of systems on a kind of practical basis, but it also illustrates like the vulnerability of our of our society and the things that we that we take for granted as being at our at our fingertips kind of every day and those those are very sort of once you start thinking about them kind of very profound intellectual and kind of civic freedoms and once once you realize how how vulnerable they are it is actually it's really scary this is this is the first time that that a cyber attack has sort of cut across not only my sort of my um my work but but you know but my ability to think in a way just zooming out i mean i understand the impact on you but what's the bigger picture impact um you know on on scholars and writers and others i mean is it really that devastating what are we like what is the short and long-term impact like who's getting hurt really it's not like a hospital you know yeah i know um (laughs) 
So the British Library is our equivalent of the Library of Congress, right? So it's the sort of, it's the place that when a, when a book is published in the UK, the British Library is entitled to a copy of every of every book. The British Library has become the the place, right? It's become the the legal depository for books, and since the nineties, it has been also leading the digitization effort of. Mm-hmm. British books and English language books. So we've reached a point where increasingly new material published in the UK will be published in electronic form and that electronic form will live on a server in the British Library. And you don't even really know it. So you go into a library in the UK or another university and you like bring up an online journal, you're reaching into the British Library servers in London. So it connects sort of all the academic institutions, all the publishing houses, everything. It's sort of like the central nervous system or the brain. So the whole kind of like brain of the of the British world is is down. The plumbing, that electronic kind of infrastructure, it's off. What does that mean? Who's getting hurt? You know, in kind of highly practical terms, the people getting hurt are people who have to deliver their PhD in the next few months. Yeah, anyone on a deadline is in a tough situation. Mm-hmm. Um, one particular kind of database which is is really hitting researchers right now is a database of doctoral theses, about 600,000 doctoral, any doctoral thesis published in the UK since the 1920s, that's down. It's that real kind of nitty-gritty of kind of research life um, is being really hampered. I think it's also hitting, you know, undergraduates and people coming into the university system for the first time. Uh, who might be being taken by their faculty to the British Library to look at, you know, some incredible manuscript from the 18th century. Like, that's not happening right now. So people aren't learning at the pace they should be. It's sort of slowed the process. Yes, it's definitely sort of one of those problems that, yes, it's it's hitting, like, academia and kind of fortunate people like me who get to go and, like, daydream in the rare books room at the British Library. But but when when once you sort of really consider the implications, they they start to kind of to seem a little larger. Yeah, is hacking cultural institutions becoming something of a trend? There was at the end of December a cyber attack um, which impacted some major museums. Attacks against the Metropolitan Opera, the Philadelphia Orchestra. Is this like a new thing that we need to guard against or be worried about, or those institutions do? Thinking about the kind of like the contrast between like the Italian Hospital Group and the British Library, like it was just sort of explained to me that kind of organisations that have sort of emergencies or kind of like civil contingencies or like really kind of grown up institutions that kind of like take all their like data and we need to be like able to operate in a fire like seriously are going to do better with a cyber attack than like an orchestra. Yeah, I saw recently JP Morgan came out and said we're fending off, I mean, just tons of cyber attacks. It's like they have a whole department devoted to it. They're spending millions. And you know, what's the what's the password on the British Library catalog? Do you know what I mean? Like Shakespeare, Shakespeare all lowercase or something, you know? <laughs> it seems like a great business for hackers yeah. because either they get the ransom or they sell a bunch of data and it sounds like there's not a lot of accountability for these groups no and i think they're they are the you know the rice kind of methodology is pretty slick and you know 
I was interested in this question of like, if you pay the ransom, does it work? And the answer is yes, because that's like the integrity of the business model. Right. Because if you're one of these institutions that's been hacked and you like ring them up, you ring the Qatar Equestrian Club and you say, did you pay? And they say, yeah, yeah, we might have paid. And he's like, did it work? He's like, yeah, it worked. So the, 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 it, it, the, the, there is a sense that these are kind of highly professional and, you know, well-run, you know, ransomware operations. So are you planning on spending some time at the library in the coming in the coming weeks and months? It's still different though, yeah? Oh, yeah. You know, as someone told me from my story, you know, it's like it's suffered a kind of institutional stroke. It's kind of part of it's working and part of it's really not working. And, you know, I don't know how pretentious you want to get with this stuff. You know, when I was doing the story, I I, I read the, the Borges story, The Library of Babel, um, and the idea of The Library of Babel is that it contains every permutation of language um, and therefore it contains every possible combination of letters in books and so therefore you have books that are full of gibberish but you also have wonderful works of literature and you also have wonderful works of literature that haven't even been imagined yet um, and when people first realized that the Library of Babel has every book that could possibly be conceived in it everyone's just like delirious with excitement and just starts running around the library and 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 is going to learn all these wonderful things and then they realize that there's no catalog there's no there's nothing to show them where all the books are and then this realization that all this knowledge is present but there's actually no way of understanding it or kind of accessing it in a logical way he describes you know this kind of equal and opposing depression like it's there but it's not there and that's what the the british library kind of feels like at the moment a sense of kind of you know unlimited possibility but kind of but out of your reach how long do you think it'll take for the library to get back to normal i feel like it's a few months a few months from now we're talking yeah. in january it happened in october we've gone from yeah. like halloween candy season just to put it in real terms sam we've gone from halloween candy season to valentine's day candy season and still not by then yeah that serious, yeah. What legacy do you think this attack will have? Will we remember it and, and why? Yeah, it's really interesting. And I kind of, you know, maybe I've been in sort of talking in kind of overly kind of romantic terms, but it did strike me that we don't really have a kind of a a language quite yet to to talk about these, to talk about these attacks and the impact that they that they have, and it struck me that the British Library has been very, you know, inarticulate about describing this. But I do think that there is definitely a kind of element of kind of victim shaming about this, a sort of sense that they must have done something wrong, uh, and therefore institutions don't really talk about it. I mean, you know, the Guardian newspaper was heavily affected by a cyber attack last year for about three months. Staffers weren't able to go into the offices at the Guardian you know, barely covered or kind of or, or talked about. I think we have to get to a point where, yeah, these events are kind of marked and thought about and kind of processed, A, obviously to kind of try and stop them happening again, but to sort of to discover a kind of uh, a way of, of, co- of coping with them. I've been thinking about them as a bit like kind of how fires must have been sort of much more of a sort of like a regular hazard in sort of 
19th century cities or something like that. You know, how are we going to withstand these these better, both in a kind of, in a practical way, but also in a, I don't know, in a kind of, in a social and a kind of political way to some extent. Sam, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Sam Knight is a staff writer at The New Yorker. And that's it for the show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell, Patrick Fort, and Anna Phillips. Our show is edited by Mia Armstrong-Lopez. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. TBD is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you're a fan of the show, I have a request for you. Become a Slate Plus member. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. We'll be back Sunday with another episode. I'm Emily Peck, filling in for Lizzie O'Leary, and you can catch me over on Slate Money every Saturday. Thanks for listening. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money.